You would think it would always be easy to tell the good guys from the bad guys, especially at Christmas time. Hey, we're told that Santa Claus has it all figured out. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. If old St. Nick can distinguish the good guys from the bad guys, then it shouldn't be that hard for the rest of us to tell them apart. This notion gets reinforced by most of our Christmas stories. Christmas is a time for a little typecasting. The good guys appear upright and noble and helpful and innocent. The bad guys always look evil and greedy and sinister. Think of all the Christmas good guys. That helpful reindeer, Rudolph. Frosty the snowman who played games with the little children. The little drummer boy who had nothing to give to Jesus but the song he played on his drum. Even George Bailey, who in that classic Christmas film, It's a Wonderful Life, discovered how that the world would be worse off if he had never lived. All these Christmas characters are examples of obvious good guys. But the Christmas villains are just as conspicuous with termites in your smile and with garlic in your soul. You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. He just looks ugly, doesn't he? And then there's that infamous Christmas bad guy, Ebenezer Scrooge. Remember his wish. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Wow. Makes you want to give him a bah humbug, doesn't it? And of course, this list of Christmas villains would not be complete without that greedy Mr. Potter, the scoundrel who wanted to foreclose on Christmas Eve. For some reason, in most Christmas dramas, good guys and bad guys are portrayed in predictable fashion. They're envisioned as we would expect. That is, in all but one Christmas story. For the first Christmas, God's Christmas drama turns the classical representations topsy-turvy, upside down. God uses some creative casting for his Christmas drama. Characters you expect to be good guys turn out to be evil, and the characters you pegged as deadbeats and dangerous end up God's heroes in the drama. You see, if you had been alive at the time, you would have looked at King Herod and the scholars in Jerusalem and that innkeeper in Bethlehem as the good guys. Hey, these were models of worldly success and religious observance. These were examples of fair play and common sense. Whereas the wise men, the shepherds, the two peasants from Nazareth, even the baby born in the stable were seen by most people as nothing special. In fact, they were examples of the problems that existed in the world at the time. That's how you might have seen it, but you would have been wrong. Once there was a little boy, he was standing in the aisle there at the shopping mall. He had tears in his eyes. He had a frightened look on his face. He was crying, I want my mommy. Well, the shoppers, they were too busy to stop and help him. But to ease their conscience and have a little pity on the boy, 
They were slipping him dimes and dollars as they passed by. Well, finally, a security guard approached the youngster and told him, said, don't worry, I know where your mother is, Sonny. The kid instantly turned off the tears. He looked up at the guard and he said firmly, so do I, but don't you tell anybody. It was a situation that was not as it first appeared to be, just like that first Christmas. The Christmas story is a drama written before the foundation of the world. It's God's drama, and it's complete with exotic sets and memorable lines and a suspenseful plot and a cast of intriguing characters. In the next few weeks, we'll be looking at the sets the lines, and the plot. But this morning, I want us to examine the cast of Christmas. First, the bad guys, and then the good guys. And by the time we're done, I think you'll discover that all throughout the year, but especially at Christmas time, appearances can be deceiving. Take King Herod, for example. In retrospect, Herod ranks as one of history's most evil men. And if you had been living in Israel at the time, that's not how you would have seen him. You would have considered Herod to be the good guy. There had to be a reason everybody called him Herod the Great. In fact, initially, even the wise men from the east mistook Herod for a good guy. And after all, they were wise guys. Do you remember what Herod told them? In Matthew chapter 2, verse 8, the wicked king said to the wise men, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. He feigned being interested. He said he wanted to worship them too. The visiting magi were led to believe that Herod had good intentions. God had to warn them in a dream that he was actually evil. In the eyes of Herod's contemporaries, He was an impressive ruler. He had the trappings of earthly wealth and affluence. Herod was tall, dark, and handsome, with broad shoulders and an athletic build. History tells us that in his younger years, Herod was good with a bow and arrow. He was an expert with a javelin, a regular jock, you might say. Though Herod was wicked and bloodthirsty at heart, he had the ability to turn on the charm when it served his interests. He was perceived as an overcomer. He rose to power in Judea from the ranks of the commoners. Herod wasn't even Jewish. He was an Edomite with a Greek name. Two strikes against him, by the way. But Herod used his charisma to win favor with the Romans. Herod also courted courted friendship with the Jews by marrying a woman of priestly ancestry. He also built a massive addition onto the temple in Jerusalem. Evidence of Herod's achievements lay just two to three miles south of Bethlehem. Today, when you visit Judea, you can still see a massive volcano-shaped cone rising from the edge of the desert. It was the site of the famous Herodium, Herod's palace fortress. A Jewish historian, Josephus, said that this magnificent palace had two circular towers, 12 stories high. 200 polished marble steps leading to its summit. This palace had hot and cold baths, a huge dining hall, luxurious gardens, a swimming pool, twice Olympic size, by the way, parade grounds that covered a quarter of a mile long, 
and a tower that allowed you to see all the way to the Mediterranean Ocean. The Herodium was the largest palace anywhere, Rome, Egypt, anywhere. It was a colossal structure that dominated the tiny town of Bethlehem below it. King Herod and his Herodium were the epitome of what the world values. Both then and now, power and ease and protection and elegance and luxury and prestige and riches and on and on. And all this success was obtained by a ruler who started out a foreigner, a stranger, even a commoner. In fact, if you'd been around at the time, you might have labeled Herod the Tony Robbins of Judea. A poster boy for the American dream. A true rags to riches story. It's sad that when we look on people like Herod, with their wealth, with their power, that we assume that all their accumulated comfort constitutes a success. Not necessarily. We envy people because they can afford a taller Christmas tree. Or more and better presents for the kiddos. Or a Christmas ski trip to Colorado. Whereas God's Christmas drama teaches us that such accomplishments have nothing to do with real success. Understand, beneath Herod's veneer of success was a dark, sinister underbelly. Herod was a selfish man. He was a control freak. This man was willing to go to any extreme to protect his wealth and his power and his prestige. Any threat to Herod's ego or his status caused his fiery temper to erupt in explosive outrage. History tells us that Herod murdered the woman he loved and their three sons because he suspected that they were involved in a coup d'etat to steal his throne. You know, the Bible also mentions Herod's violent temper. The arrival of the wise men with news of a newborn king upset Herod. Matthew 2 verse 3 tells us, When Herod heard these things, he was troubled. The word means greatly agitated. Literally, it shook him to the foundations. Again, the good guy turned vile and vicious. And Herod's temper erupted when he ordered the slaughter of all the male babies in Bethlehem. Understand, those people the world calls good guys often are not. And that was certainly case, the case with another group of people hanging out in Jerusalem at the time of the wise men's visit. The chief priests and the scribes were told in Matthew chapter 2, verse 4, that Herod gathered all of the chief priests and scribes of the people together, and he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. These chief priests and scribes were the religious elite. There was actually a road that led directly from the neighborhood of these priests straight into the temple courtyard. They literally lived in the courts of the Lord. Realize these men were the chief priests, the heavyweights of holiness. They spent their days observing religious rituals. It was their profession to pray and to study and to search the scriptures. And when asked where the Christ was to be born, they knew They gave King Herod the correct answer in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written. And they quoted verbatim the Messianic prophecy from Micah chapter 5. If it were today, the chief priests and the scribes would be labeled the religious crowd. These were the faithful church attendees. 
They were up on their Bible. They paid their tithes. They probably participated each year in the nativity play. And they never passed one of those Salvation Army kettles without tossing in a few spare change. If any group of people were good guys, it had to be these guys. Or so you would have thought. But just remember, people are not always what they seem. One Christmas, New York City suffered from a garbage worker strike. Imagine the stench that rose from the streets as countless bags of garbage piled high on the curb. One man, though, came up with a solution, a creative solution. He took his trash bags, tied red Christmas bows to the tops of the bags, and set them in the back seat of his car. Whenever he left his car in the parking lot or on the street, he would deliberately leave the doors unlocked. While he was away, thieves would steal his bags of garbage from his car, thinking they were full of Christmas gifts. It turned out to be an efficient way to dispose of his garbage. But imagine the irony, wrapping garbage in pretty packages. Yet that's exactly what Jerusalem's chief priests and scribes had done. These men looked like good guys. They impersonated a pretty package. But inside, their hearts were full of garbage and rottenness. As one author wrote, the ox and donkey in Bethlehem understood more of the first Christmas than the high priests in Jerusalem. They were spiritual arrogance and hypocrisy wrapped in pretty packages. Realize these priests knew the exact whereabouts of Messiah's birth. They could have gone to worship, but they were too busy being religious. They had their own pursuits. They were too preoccupied with what they were into. They were ambivalent to what God was up to. The hearts of these priests were cold toward God, and so they ignored Jesus. They looked like good guys on the outside, but in reality, they were some of the bad guys. There's one more bad guy in the Christmas cast, but if you'd been there, you would have empathized with him. I know you would have. You might have even appreciated the stand he took. Understand, population-wise, Bethlehem was a blip on the screen. Estimates vary from between 100 people and 450 people. It wasn't exactly the ideal spot for a hotel franchise. The local innkeeper probably made sacrifices just to keep his operation open. Surely, he, his was the only such establishment in his town. He figured he was doing his little community a favor by providing lodging for their guests. The only reason his hotel was filled up that particular night was because of the Roman census. So why shouldn't he turn away this couple from Nazareth? They had no reservation. Why didn't they plan ahead like everybody else? It wasn't his problem. All night long, this innkeeper had listened to similarly desperate stories and was forced to turn down people just as needy. Besides, the fire marshal might shut him down if he didn't observe the occupancy statutes. He had to stay legal or no one would have a place to stay. This was just a decent guy trying to make a living. You don't consider somebody a bad guy just because they throw up a no vacancy sign. This innkeeper was serving his community, seeking to be a good citizen. What's wrong with business by the book? Shouldn't a person keep the rules? There's something we need to understand about God. 
When God enters the game, the rules are subject to change. If God chooses to do a new thing or reach a new group or reveal himself in a new way, then it's up to us to change how we do business, not God. We have to cooperate with him. See, suddenly the good guys are those who are flexible and teachable. The bad guys are the people who refuse to budge. It's ironic, but the keeper of the status quo, like this innkeeper, can become the bad guy when God does a new work. To the contrary, when God goes on the move, it's flexibility and sensitivity that become the desired virtues. I love the little boy who messed up the church's Christmas program. He just blew it all to smithereens. He had the role of the innkeeper, but he didn't like his lines. He was determined to change them. So when Joseph and Mary came knocking on his door asking for a room, the little fellow responded, You're in luck. We just had a cancellation. Good guys always make room for Jesus. Well, our bad guys, they looked like good guys. Until you take the time to strip away their facade and peer into their hearts to see their true motives, their real attitudes. King Herod hid his arrogance and his selfishness behind a veneer of success. The priests hid their apathy toward God behind the drape of religion. The innkeeper hid his inflexibility and unwillingness to bend to God's will behind the cover of duty and good business practice. This is why you have to dig deeper and get beyond appearance to distinguish the good guys from the bad guys. Once there was a Christmas pageant that was spoiled by missing Jesus. Everyone left that Friday with the life-size nativity scene all set up across the church lawn. But on Sunday morning, a key component of the Christmas drama was missing. Imagine. Somebody had stolen baby Jesus. The crime remained unsolved until a few days after Christmas. The pastor went out for a walk when he noticed little Tommy Baker pulling a shiny new wagon. He knew the Bakers didn't have much money and he admired their sacrifice to purchase him such a gift. The pastor went over to compliment Tommy on his new wagon when he saw lying in the back of the wagon, wrapped in a blanket, None other than the missing baby Jesus. Of course, the pastor was so disappointed in little Tommy. This child knew better, and a crime of this magnitude couldn't be overlooked. So the pastor knelt down and rebuked Tommy for stealing baby Jesus. That's when tears swelled up in the little guy's eyes. He said, but pastor, I didn't steal Jesus. I've been asking him for a wagon for so long, and I promised that when I got it, the first thing I'd do is take him for a ride. See, it's true, bad guys can look like good guys. But it's also true, good guys at first can appear to be the bad guys. Think of the wise men. Magi is the correct translation. The Magi were advisors in the courts of Persia and Babylon. The Greek historian Herodotus said that the Magi were a priestly caste of Medes. They were experts in law and mathematics and science and astronomy and medicine and philosophy and religion. The Magi might have visited Jesus on camels, but six centuries earlier, they rode Arabian stallions into battle against the Hebrews and conquered 
the city of Jerusalem. Now the Babylonians are returning to the scene of earlier crimes. Imagine your former enemy. A band of wild, exotic foreigners showing up in your capital city with an entourage of servants and supplies. They're seeking the whereabouts of a king who will rule over your land. I'd say take them into custody. They need to be properly vetted before we let them in. Surely an FBI inspection is in order. But God's Christmas trauma teaches us that just because a person doesn't look like me or dress like me or talk like me or have the same skin color as me, it doesn't mean that they're a bad guy. In reality, these mysterious magi, they were the unlikely good guys. You see, years earlier, a Hebrew had been appointed head over the magi in Babylon. The man's name was Daniel. And for the 600 years following, the Magi were schooled in the Hebrew scriptures and the prophecies of Daniel. You mean people can be of a different background and still worship the same Lord Jesus? What a realization. In fact, the Magi may have been better versed in the scriptures than the Jewish chief priests and scribes who were in Jerusalem. Which clues me in on how you can tell a good guy from a bad guy. In chapter 2, verse 2 of Matthew, when the Magi rode into Jerusalem, they asked, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. You can pick out good guys not by their looks or where they come from or their accumulations, but by noting who they worship. Real success is not obtaining gold, but knowing God. Herod and the wise men, they both had gold, but the wise men knew where to lay down their gold. They laid it at the feet of the infant king. Good guys, bow to Jesus. Take also the shepherds. You know, in ancient times, shepherds had an unsavory reputation. When shepherds came in from the fields, the sheriff was put on alert. They were often grungy, foul-mouthed, smelly, dirty, uncouth, uncivilized. Shepherds were hoodlums. Matter of fact, if you were around a pack of shepherds, you'd want to keep one hand on your wallet. Shepherds were usually shady characters. In fact, there was a Jewish law that prohibited a shepherd from testifying in court. It was generally held that the testimony of a shepherd couldn't be trusted. If you had been around at the time, never in a million years would you have considered a shepherd to be one of the good guys. Yet in God's Christmas drama, they were. It was to shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night, that news of Messiah's birth first was broadcast in Israel. And remember the shepherds' reaction to the angel's announcement. In Luke chapter 2, verse 15, we're told, They said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. Unlike those chief priests in Jerusalem, the shepherds, they didn't know much about their Bible. They were ignorant of the scriptures. They were unfamiliar with prophecies and religious protocols. They had no airs of outward purity or holiness. I'm sure they were aware of their sin and their unworthiness. But they did what those chief priests and scribes refused to do. 
They responded to God with an eagerness and an openness. They seized an opportunity to worship. The shepherds were not too busy, nor their hearts too cold, to drop what they were doing and run to see Jesus. One author author calls the shepherd's journey to the stable the first Christmas rush. Like shoppers on Black Friday, the shepherds raced to get in on the deal that God was offering. Let's also be ready worshipers. Unexpectedly, when they had done nothing to deserve it, for no other reason than grace, God gave these shepherds an opportunity, and they pounced. And this is good news for us. When God chose the cast for the drama of all the ages, he chose shepherds to play the good guys. Imagine, God chose shepherds. Men who were not allowed to testify in a court of law were the very first eyewitnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who says God can't use the likes of us? This all means that God doesn't care where you've been. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't shy away from a blemished reputation or a record of wrongs. None of a person's shadiness stops God from choosing that person and changing that person and using that person. Tradition has it that shepherds, the shepherds who first heard the news of Messiah's birth were not just watching their flocks that night, but they were tending the priestly flocks that would later be offered as sacrifices in the temple there in Jerusalem. Apparently, God had been speaking to these shepherds through their own sheep that one day he would supply the ultimate sacrifice. They knew the Savior that the angels announced had come to die in their place and to win their forgiveness. These shepherds were aware of their need and rushed to the Bethlehem stable to meet their Savior. Amazingly, God chose wise men and shepherds to teach us that Jesus turns bad guys into good guys. And of course today, we would never view Joseph and Mary as bad guys. But you can bet people at the time didn't hesitate to pin that label on the parents of Jesus. Poor, displaced, strangers, vagrants. These were the homeless. I'm sure the residents of Bethlehem saw them as a nuisance. No one wanted them in their neighborhood. They wished they'd just go back from where they came. Someone once joked, the reason Jesus was born in a stable was because Mary and Joseph had an HMO. But it was worse. They had no insurance at all. The parents of Jesus were poor and disadvantaged and needy. And they had no place to lay their head. Nancy Dahlberg tells the story of the Christmas day when her family pulled into a diner for lunch. Only one other person was in the restaurant that day, a toothless man who wore a tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, worn-out pants, shoes that exposed naked toes, and a shirt that looked like it had been dyed in ring around the collar. Yet for some reason, Nancy's one-year-old, Eric, started shouting across the room to this man, Hi there! Hi there! Well, the bum shouted back, Hi there, little baby! Hi there, Buster. I see you, Sonny. The old man became so loud and boisterous that Nancy and her husband became fearful of what would happen next. The man kept yelling across the room, Do you play patty cake? Do you play peekaboo, peekaboo? Going back and forth. 
to Nancy and her husband's chagrin, little Eric was cooperating with this ill-mannered street person. Finally, the Dahlbergs decided to leave. Nancy's husband paid her bill and went to start the car. Nancy prayed as she headed to the door, Please, Lord, help me get out of this restaurant before this man approaches me and Eric. But it was too late. The man moved in her direction, and little Eric lunged from his mother's arms into the arms of his newfound friend. His head landed on the man's greasy shoulder. Let me allow Nancy Dahlberg to tell you the rest of her story. The man's eyes closed, and I saw tears hover beneath his lashes. His aged hands, full of grime and pain and hard labor, gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked his back. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and sat squarely on mine. He said, you take care of this baby. Somehow, I will came from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest, unwillingly, longingly, as though he were in pain. I opened my arms to receive my baby, and again he addressed me, God bless you, ma'am. You've given me my Christmas gift. With Eric back in my arms, I ran for the car. My husband wondered why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly, why I was saying, God, Please forgive me. You can bet the innkeeper would have never allowed this same grimy man in his establishment. Loiterers, deadbeats, street people are bad for business. Before Nancy's experience in the diner, she thought she was a good guy. But afterwards, she realized how unbending she had been to the will of God. That God was at work in the most unlikely people and in the most unlikely places. And Nancy had hid her resistance to God's will under the cover of common sense and business as usual. She learned that God even loves and uses the down and out. And the good guys, like their God, care about those misfits. They care about the undesirable people in their world. Well, finally, there's one other good guy in God's Christmas drama. He, of course, is the star of the show. He is the baby lying in the manger. These bizarre magi, they walk past Herod's colossal fortress, sidestepping the embodiments of the world's riches and power to worship at the feet of this baby. The seedy shepherds dropped everything. They left their flocks unattended to rush to see the promised child, this baby. Joseph and Mary were not too rigid, too inflexible to put their lives and futures on hold so they could oversee the arrival of this special child, this baby. Wise men bowed. Shepherds receive a second chance. Peasants become important, all because of this baby. Before the baby Jesus, the earth's greatest bow low. Riches are sacrificed. Past sins are forgotten. Lives yield to God in fresh ways, all before this baby. Once there was a king who had a dream. He saw a huge pair of scales reaching from earth into heaven. Stacked on one side of the scales were all the world's treasures. Jewels and gold and houses and nations and power. The pan was so heavy that it touched and rested on the earth. 
On the other side of the scales, high in the air, was a nest of straw. That's when an angel appeared from heaven with a baby and laid that baby in the nest of straw. And suddenly the king witnessed an amazing thing. The scales slowly yet deliberately began to shift. It was obvious that the tiny baby from heaven outweighed all the treasures of the world. Until finally, it was the baby in the straw that was on the side of the scales that was touching the ground. You see, Christmas reminds us that God's drama, in God's drama, everything gets turned on its ear. Values go topsy-turvy. What a person appears to be is not always what they are. Real success is always more than earthly stuff, guys. Religious observance is never a suitable substitute for an eager heart that is excited about worshiping God. And business as usual is a lame excuse when God is up to something new. Here's my question to you this morning. This Christmas, are you one of the good guys or are you one of the bad guys? I hope you realize that you can have the heart of a wise man even if you have the past of a shepherd. Don't turn away the Josephs and Marys in need and love that baby in the manger with all your heart for it is that baby who makes all of the difference. This Christmas, I hope we all fall more in love with Jesus.